Well, this morning, as we turn to study 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, we learn that Christians, or really that Christ, is uh, precious to God. And that, that Christians are also precious to God. In fact, they're, they're possessed by God for the purpose of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Uh, if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bible, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you should be able to find our passage on page 1014. This is what we have the privilege of, of thinking about this morning. The, the first readers of 1 Peter were God's elect exiles scattered throughout what we know today as modern Turkey. These believers in Jesus, they were facing oppression for their faith. They had refused to conform to the, the passions of the world, and so they were greeted with surprise and scorn and in some cases slander. Peter wanted these uh, believers, he wanted to remind them that they are strangers and sojourners and that they should live like it. Uh, their, their lives are necessarily different because they've been saved by God. And so their lives are different. And, and, and this is good. This actually brings glory to God. And since their lives are different, since they've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, they should live like it. Uh, in, in one sense, the, the thrust of Peter's letter is simply to encourage believers to embrace their exile, to, to live as exiles. Uh, so far in the letter, Peter has said that embracing your exile means living in light of the last day, uh, loving your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and longing for the Word of God. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-12, through 12, we learn that embracing your exile means that we have been saved by God for service to God. Uh, it means that we've been possessed to proclaim Jesus Christ. So Peter, he makes one simple point in verses 4 to 12. If you wanted to, you could consider this the one-sentence summary for the text. Here it is. God's elect exiles are precious to God and possessed by God for the purpose of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Embrace your exile. Tell others about Jesus. That's the thrust of 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 12. We're going to look at this text in two sections under two headings. First, we learn that Christ is precious to God. And second, that Christians proclaim Christ. Let's begin with our first point. Christ is precious to God. We're going to see this in verses 4 to 8. So read 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning there in verse 4. I'll read through verse 8. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Well, I hope you see that Jesus is the center of attention in these verses. That's not to say that others aren't in view, like Christians are in view, unbelievers are in view, God the Father is in view, and yet Jesus is the gravitational center of these verses. Uh, we, we come to Jesus. You see that in verse 4. God chose Jesus also there in verse 4. We are built up in connection to Jesus. That's verse 5. And offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus. Also there in verse 5. God made Jesus the cornerstone. Verse 6. Unbelievers reject Jesus. Verse 7. And they stumble over Jesus. Verse 8. Jesus is the gravitational center of these verses. And there are three lines of thought that we really need to trace through these verses. We, we need to see Jesus as the cornerstone, Jesus as received, and Jesus as rejected. Now notice that Peter first identifies Jesus in verse 4 as a living stone. Did you see that? That's a curious phrase, isn't it? We don't normally think of stones as living. And in fact, earthly stones are not living. Uh, 
We also don't normally think of people as stones. But Jesus, well, he confounds all categories. He is a living stone. And Peter is especially working on a metaphor here, an image that Scripture has used before. It's that of a temple. Peter's kind of slowly rolling out this imagery. The idea in verses 4 to 8 is plain. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's end-time temple. And Jesus actually said this about himself in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. Now the Jews listening to Jesus scoffed at him, saying, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And that's when the Apostle John in his gospel wrote this. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. That's John chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Jesus is a living stone because he's alive. He has risen from the dead and he is Lord. He is the cornerstone of God's end time temple that's being built. And to prove this claim, Peter, he quotes from the Old Testament there in verse 6. Specifically, he quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which this is what Isaiah says. Therefore, thus says the Lord God Yahweh, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation stone in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Do you see the, uh, the imagery that's being developed here? God the Father, He's going about the work of building the temple. He is building a temple not made by human hands. And in order to begin the work, He has to pick the perfect stone, the, the cornerstone. Jesus will be the stone that all other stones will be laid against and laid on top of. He is the most important stone in the whole building project. He is the decisive stone. The one that God the Father chooses and Himself lays. The stone, we are told, is chosen. It's precious. Jesus was chosen to be the cornerstone of God's end-time temple. And we know that Jesus is precious to God the Father. He was loved from before all eternity. And this is also proclaimed in His earthly ministry. Right? Do you remember... Uh, what God the Father said of Jesus, His Son, at His baptism. He said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He's precious to God the Father. And that wasn't the only time that God told us that Jesus was precious. Remember Jesus' transfiguration. The Father also said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Jesus was chosen by God the Father to be the cornerstone. And He was and is Precious to God the Father. And the question for each one of us is this. Is Jesus precious to us? Do we take God's perspective on Jesus? Jesus incites, as we see in this passage, varying responses. Uh, some received Jesus and some rejected Jesus. Some come to Jesus and some cast Him away. Some are saved by Jesus and some stumble over Him. What is your response? To Jesus, Well, let's, let's look at the two responses in these verses and the two outcomes of these responses. There are those who receive Jesus. Those who receive Jesus are those who come to Him. You see that in verse 4. They, they come to Him in repentance and faith. They come to Him because they have heard His voice and His call. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, He promised eternal rest to all who come to Him in repentance and faith. He, he promised rest to all who believe that He lived the righteous and sinless life that we have not. He, he promised rest to those who believe that He died bearing the punishment due to their sins. He promised rest to all who believe that He was raised from the grave on the third day and that He is a living stone. Have you come to Jesus? Have you stopped running away? From Jesus and have you instead run to him to put it in the language of verse 6 do you believe in Jesus you can see that in Peter's quote of the prophet Isaiah to come to Jesus is simply to believe in Jesus for salvation from sin Peter he also tells us the outcome or the result of those who believe in Jesus 
those who believe in Jesus in the living stone are like Jesus in that they too are living stones. Do you see that there in verse 5? Those who come to Jesus and believe in Jesus are living stones because previously they were spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, but now they've been made alive with Jesus Christ. Those who have come to Jesus are spiritually alive and they are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, the language of a, a spiritual house there you see in verse 5, it's the language of a temple. Do you, do you remember what Jesus said to the money changers in the, the temple when he turned the tables over? He said this in John chapter 2, verse 16. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 13. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. There in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. In both the Old and the New Testaments, the temple was understood to be God's house, God's dwelling place. And here, Peter is telling his readers, scattered believers in Jesus Christ, that they are being built up as a spiritual temple. That they make God's presence known in the world. Make it known to others. This is what's actively going on in this era of redemptive history. The end time temple is being constructed on Jesus the cornerstone. It is being built brick by brick of those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul said. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Let me read those verses for you. Listen to what Paul says about how the, the temple, the church, is being built. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, it's in Jesus, in Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is the cornerstone. And we who believe in Him are bricks in the building. God put Jesus into place, and even now, He is putting us into place. What took place in the Old Testament temple? Priestly service unto God. And what does Peter say believers in Jesus are up to there in verse 5? Having been made holy bricks, believers are given holy work. We are royal priests. And here Peter is introducing a subject that he's going to kind of tease out in verses 9 to 12. But for now, we need to notice that all of our holy work is made acceptable through God's holy Son. Jesus Christ. You see that at the end of verse 5. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, because we are, are finite and fallen, our good works uh, will exhibit weakness and imperfection. And still, what we see here is that our God is pleased to accept our good works through Jesus Christ. The whole of a Christian's life and service begins and ends with Jesus. Our lives are offered to Jesus. Our service is offered through Jesus. This, Peter tells us, is an honor. Did you notice that in verse 7? Peter is telling us that we will share in the everlasting honor of Jesus Christ. We too will share in His resurrection honor and glory. Honor and shame are opposite outcomes that are held out for us in this text. And these are especially uh, connected with the resurrection of the dead in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel pulls out this truth that believers are resurrected to everlasting honor and unbelievers, sadly, to everlasting shame. But here is a promise of God's word for those who receive Jesus. You will not be put to shame. You will not be eternally condemned or cast out. You will not be rejected by God. Instead, you will receive honor with Christ, your cornerstone, on the last day. That's the outcome for those who receive Jesus. But we need to think carefully about those whom Peter says reject Jesus. The first note of rejection of Jesus, it arises there in verse 4. Jesus was and is the living stone that was rejected by men. That's what we're told happened actually in the opening of John's gospel. 
In John chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, we read these words. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus, John's talking about Jesus. Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The one who made the world and made the people standing before him. They rejected him. Jesus was rejected by men. The very people who should have recognized and received him, despised and rejected him. And Jesus said this was the case. That's what we read from Matthew chapter 21 earlier, right? Jesus said, I'm the cornerstone and you're rejecting me. That's why he told that parable to the Jewish leaders. Jesus was rejected by men. Now take that in for a minute. Jesus was rejected by men. Some of us here this morning feel rejected. Some of us feel rejected by men. Uh, some of us feel rejected by women. Uh, some feel rejected by coworkers. Others feel rejected by classmates or teammates or those we thought were friends. Uh, some feel rejected by parents. Others feel rejected by your children. Rejection is real. Almost all of us know the feeling of rejection in one way or another. And I think that this is something we need to learn about Jesus. He knows the feeling of rejection too. He too was rejected. Often in our rejection, we think that no one understands. But that's a lie. Jesus understands. If you feel rejected... Do not reject Jesus. If you feel rejected, do not reject Jesus. Jesus understands. Don't reject the one who actually understands you and your experience. He understands, so, so draw near to him. Read of his rejection in Psalm 22. See how he entrusted himself to God the Father in his rejection and learn that you can do the same. Jesus, he was rejected by men. He was hounded and haunted by the Jewish religious leaders until ultimately he was hung on the cross by the Roman authorities. Jesus was rejected by those who should have been the builders of God's people. The, the Jewish religious leaders should have been those who were building up God's people, preparing them to receive God's Messiah. But they rejected God's chosen and precious cornerstone when they rejected Jesus. And this was predicted by the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures predicted and promised that God's Messiah would be rejected. And that's why Peter quotes the Old Testament Scriptures there in verse 7. Here Peter's citing Psalm 118, verse 22. Peter links this one Old Testament quotation with another one in verse 8. And there Peter is quoting from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 8, verse 14. Long before Jesus arrived, it was predicted and promised that he would be the rejected stone. And by the way, isn't it interesting uh, that when Peter is thinking about the Old Testament, uh, when he's thinking about rocks and stones and the building of the church, he doesn't think of himself. He thinks of Jesus. Did you notice that? Peter doesn't put himself in this text at all. No, he thinks of Jesus. And that's because it was upon his confession that Jesus would build his church. So in, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said this. Peter was, was the one, right, who, who confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus responds to Peter saying this in Matthew 16. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Uh, and I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Peter is thinking of rocks and stones and the building of the church, he doesn't think of himself. He thinks of Jesus. We see that right here. That's because it was upon the rock of his confession that Jesus is the Christ, that God would build his church. And as I said, Peter cites Psalm 118, verse 22, and Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, there in verses 7 and 8. And what's interesting is that Peter is actually clipped uh, Isaiah's quotation there, the first part of Isaiah's quote. Listen to the first part of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Speaking of Yahweh, I Isaiah writes, 
and he, that's Yahweh, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. You see, often in the New Testament, uh, the, the writers will cite a small portion of Scripture and they mean to bring to mind a larger portion of the text. And if that's the case, I think it is what's going on here. Then Peter is equating Jesus with Yahweh. Peter is equating Jesus with a sanctuary, a, a temple. Jesus is that offensive temple. He is that stone, that rock that many will stumble over. And how will they stumble? You see it right there in the text? Through disobedience. Why will they stumble? Because they were destined to. That's what Peter says at the end of verse 8. Read verse 8, the end of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Those who refuse to hear Jesus' command to repent and believe disobey the word of the gospel. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a divine summons to submit your life to Jesus. It is not a mere invitation. It is a demand. It is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus commanded us to repent and believe. That the New Testament preachers of the gospel understood the gospel as uh, to contain a divine command, a summons to repent and believe in Jesus is seen in the Apostle Paul's remarkable speech, or really his preaching in Acts chapter 17. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere are under the divine command to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are in disobedience to God. You are in disobedience to God. If you refuse to submit your life to Him and seek Him for salvation, don't disobey. Repent. Turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The responsibility is yours. That's where you say, but the text you see there, it says that those who reject Jesus were destined to reject Jesus. Well, yes, that is true. Jesus' rejection, both on the cross and as He's offered in the gospel, uh, were, were destined or predestined. The word destined there might, might be better translated, uh, appointed. There were some who were appointed to disobedience. The, the reality of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8 is this. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both true. God has destined some to eternal salvation, to heavenly honor, and some to eternal destruction, to shame in hell. God's sovereignty is not doubted by Peter. And at the same time, man's responsibility is not destroyed by Peter, but rather upheld. Peter says, they stumbled, they disobeyed. God did not disobey for them. God did not stumble for them. Similarly, there in verse 4, it says, as you come to him. So for those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God did not come to Jesus for you. You came to Jesus. Peter sees God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as two things that are both true at the same time. And we, we tend to focus in on the mysterious relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But sometimes we do that in order to escape our responsibility. What, what we really ought to focus on is this. We have a responsibility to respond to Jesus in obedience. That much is clear. You have a responsibility, and it is this. Do not stumble over Jesus. He is precious to God. And He should be precious to you too. You have a responsibility not to disobey Jesus. So don't. Obey His command. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Make the one who is chosen and precious in God's sight, chosen and precious in your sight. Build your life upon God's cornerstone and you will not be put to shame. You will be put in your proper place in God's temple 
and in God's service. You will be put into service as a royal priest. Which leads to the second point that we need to consider together. Christians proclaim Christ. Christians proclaim Christ. This is what we see in verses 9 to 12. Pick up reading there in verse 9. But, it's an important transition word right there. But, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you might proclaim, or you may proclaim, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, in these verses, Peter, he is concerned with our proclamation. And and our proclamation, it really takes two forms. The the proclamation of our lips, that's what we see there in verses 9 and 10, and the proclamation of our lives, verses 11 and 12. Peter wants us to verbally proclaim Christ because of what Christ has done for us. And Peter wants us to be pure, to be holy in all our conduct so that God is glorified through us and a true testimony about Him is given. Verse 9, it carries a a sharp contrast, right? There are some who disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 8, but, Peter says, you are different. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And did you notice that Peter used the same word that he used about Jesus earlier, right? Jesus, earlier Peter said that Jesus was chosen by God. And now, Peter says, Christians are chosen too. We we do not choose ourselves. No, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. These descriptions, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, they're they're, they're really uh, getting at a similar idea, the same idea. In fact, all of these descriptions are found in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Um, in fact, as I, as I read Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, keep your eyes on these uh, descriptions and see if you can hear how Peter is referring to what Moses said in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Moses said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, God through Moses, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Peter has just told us in verse 8 that some disobey the word. And did you hear what Exodus 19 said? It said that if you obey, you shall be my treasured possession. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation. These believers scattered throughout modern Turkey have obeyed. They've obeyed Jesus' command to repent and believe. And so they are. They've been uh, called as God's chosen race. They've been commissioned as His royal priesthood. They've been uh, declared His representatives as a holy nation. And they've been treasured as a people for His own possession. Here's the amazing thing. This truth applies to believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Gentile believers are now priests in the true Israel of God and the true temple of God. In fact, this was always to be so. Uh, The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 66 verses 18 to 21 uh, made plain that God would gather his people from the nations and that he would make them priests and Levites. Jews and Gentiles would be made priests and Levites. This is astounding. Right Previously, uncircumcised Gentiles were not allowed to come into the temple. But as we're learning from Peter, they are temple. Not only are they temple because of their faith union with Christ, the cornerstone, but they're also priests. And they're not just any priests, they're royal priests. We, all Christians, stand and offer spiritual sacrifices in the service of our great 
King, Jesus Christ. This is not just true of some Christians, but of all Christians. Peter's not just talking to the pastors of the churches that he's writing to. He's talking to all the believers that he's writing to. We are a chosen race. Those whom God has mercifully chosen to save. We are royal priests, ordained and given orders for service unto Christ. But we are also a holy nation. We are not a nation in which uh, we conceive of kind of nations today. We're citizens of various nations of the earth. But there is a holy nation that supersedes them all. Right? We're sojourners and exiles. In fact, we're ambassadors. And this church is a local assembly. An outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And we are called to go and declare, be ambassadors for Christ. Proclaiming his good news to the world around us. We're a holy nation. And we represent that nation that God will one day bring in full on the last day. We are set apart by God and we pledge our ultimate, our ultimate allegiance to Him. Perhaps the most glorious description in this whole string of this, or at least it's the most glorious to me, is, is that we are a people for His own possession. Did you notice that there? If anything, I think that kind of expresses the, the heartbeat of what we read about Jesus earlier. Jesus being precious. We are God's own possession. He, he loves and treasures us. And in the, the original language, this phrase, it carries with it a notion of, of safety and protection. He's brought us into his, his arms like the father that he is and holds us as his children and keeps us safe. We are so loved by God that he saves us and keeps us safe because we belong to him. Christian, you are, are precious to God. You're possessed by God. You are not your own. You are bought by the price of Christ's blood. This is who we are. We've been made bricks in the temple and priests in the kingdom for a reason. Earlier, Peter said that we've been called to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And now he tells us what that really means. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have been saved to serve. We are possessed by God so that we might proclaim Jesus Christ. Again, this is true of every Christian. It's not some special class of Christians who are possessed to proclaim Jesus Christ. It's all Christians. And what are we to proclaim? His excellencies. His mighty acts of salvation. Or His praises, as some translations put it. Christian, you are called to proclaim what God has done in Jesus Christ. And by proclaiming here, Peter undoubtedly has the use of our lips in mind. The word here is ex angulo, which means to declare, really to offer a report. You can't do that without words. Here's how the the writer of the Hebrews puts this idea very plainly in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, where he writes, Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What does that mean? That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. We must acknowledge His name. Do our lips acknowledge the name of Jesus? Do we proclaim His name? When was the last time you shared the good news of Jesus with someone? This is what you've been possessed for. To proclaim Christ. You know full well why He is praiseworthy. He has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. It's not as though you don't have material on the Messiah. You do in your own life. You've got material on the Messiah. Not only was there a time when you were in darkness, but there was a time when we didn't belong to God. Verse 10. We are possessed by God now. We are God's people now. We belong to Him now. But there was a time when we didn't. To put it in the language of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. There was a time when we were under the threat of God's just wrath. Once we had not received mercy... But now we have received mercy in Jesus Christ. Christian, God did not give you what your sins deserve. Do you want to know what your sins deserve? Look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we all deserve. That's what our sins deserve. We deserve to be forsaken. We deserve to be forsaken by God the Father. 
We deserve to suffer under his just wrath. But in his great mercy, he has not given us what our sins deserve. Instead, he has poured out our punishment on his own most beloved and precious son, Jesus Christ. Thomas Hooker, a a Puritan minister in Connecticut, uh, there's a a fascinating story from uh, his deathbed. It's, It's often told, one day a friend came to visit Thomas Hooker on his deathbed, and he said to him, Sir, you are going to receive the reward of your labor. To which Thomas Hooker replied, Brother, I'm going to receive mercy. Praise God for his mercy. We would not survive if we were to be paid for our working in sin, being paid the wages that's due to our sin. Praise God, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are recipients of mercy. Remember, dear Christian, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He purposed to rescue us from long ago. In one of Isaiah's servant songs, Isaiah 42, Yahweh said that this is what his Messiah would do. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. That's Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. This is what the Messiah would do. Spiritually speaking, God has opened our eyes to Jesus Christ, the light of the world. He has brought us out of the dark dungeons of despair and depravity so that we may declare His praise. This is what you have been possessed for, to proclaim Jesus Christ. Practically speaking, what what are some ways that we can proclaim the excellencies of of the Lord Jesus. How can we acknowledge his name on our lips as the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13:15? When you turn up to work on Monday morning, have you thought about asking your coworkers what they did over the weekend? What, what, were, what were you up to over the weekend? Often when you ask that question, they're going to ask you a, a similar question in return. Well, what did you do this weekend? And let me just encourage you, skip over the boring stuff. Right? Uh, skip over uh, taking your kids to sports practice or games. Skip over telling them that you went grocery shopping. Uh, skip over the book or the blog you read. Skip over the movie, the new movie that's just out that you went to see. Uh, skip over the boring stuff and get to the good stuff. Uh, tell them that you went to church and that you, you, you read a fascinating verse in 1 Peter about Jesus being the cornerstone of God's church. He's this living rock. It's the weirdest thing. He's a living rock. Jesus is a rock that we can trip over or that we can build our lives upon. And then you can ask, have you thought about building your life on Jesus? Well, here's another possibility. When people ask you how you're doing, perhaps you can tell them that you're doing well, that you're grateful, that God has been merciful to you in Jesus Christ. And then ask them, do you know Jesus? Have have you you heard of Jesus? Have Have you met him? Why don't you join me at church this Sunday? I'd be honored if you join me. Or you could say, you know, the way to get to know Jesus is actually by reading the Bible. Would you like to read through the Gospel of Mark with me? I'd be honored if you would join me in reading through the Gospel of Mark or some other Gospel. What, um, what do those two examples of acknowledging Jesus Christ on our lips have in common? It's this. They're offensive. And, and by that, I don't mean that they're, um, they're kind of rude. They're offensive in the sense that they are, they're reaching out instead of sitting back. Uh, they're, they're moving the conversation to Jesus instead of waiting for the conversation to come around to Jesus. Which, let's be honest, that rarely happens. People who don't love Jesus typically don't want to talk about Jesus. So the conversation is going to be very rare. To come around to Jesus. So there's a sense in which we have to take the conversation to Jesus. Um, That's the nature of proclamation. That's the nature of a report. You've actually got to give it. Right? Think about back when you were in school and you had to give an oral report. Well, there always came the day when you actually had to give the oral report. A friend of mine says that we don't do evangelism because evangelism is not on the brain. And uh, I think he's mostly right. In order to 
get to Jesus and proclaim his excellencies, we've got to enter into a party or enter into a conversation with the goal of getting to Jesus. Right? We've been made uh, priests. We've been possessed so that we might proclaim Christ with our lips. But priests, we learn from this text, we learn from the Old Testament as well, priests must also be pure. We've already learned in our study of 1 Peter that we must be holy as God is holy. And that's what Peter turns to in verses 11 and 12. Peter transitions from being concerned about the proclamation of our lips to the proclamation of our lives. In verse 11 of chapter 2, you see there, Peter begins to urge his readers to action. In fact, these these verses of 11 and 12 of chapter 2, they're going to frame everything from this point forward in the letter until we get to chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, Here, Peter is earnestly pleading with these Christians scattered throughout what we know today as modern Turkey. He's pleading with them. And as I, I thought about this, this language of urging, it made me wonder, in our conversations with one another, do we plead with one another enough? Do we urge one another enough? Do we, do we urge each other to be holy? How, how often do we urge each other to fight against the flesh? Um, in our relationships, perhaps we need just a little bit more earnestness and zeal. And yet, consider where Peter's earnest and zealous appeal begins. Do you see it in, in the first word there? He reminds them of who they are in that one word, beloved. They're loved by Peter. You've probably heard the, the cliche, right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there's some truth to that. Um, And as Peter begins to urge and exhort his brothers and sisters in Christ onto holiness, he reminds them of his love. Um, The the phrase might be translated like loved ones or or dearly loved ones. Um, When when you begin to urge your brothers and sisters onto holiness, make sure you begin here. Make sure your brother or sister understands and knows that you love them. Uh, Peter tells these saints that he loves them, but the word beloved is probably doing double duty, actually. Uh, Peter loves these saints, but more to the point, they are God's beloved. They're his chosen and precious ones. Peter not only reminds them of who they are, but he reminds them of where they are. Did you see that? They are not home. They are sojourners and exiles. They are out, outside of their homelands. Now, originally, this may have been true of those who first received this letter. They may have been physically displaced from their homelands. But this is still certainly true of us here today in a spiritual sense. Um, They are visitors, perhaps the uh, uh, original audience, they're visitors uh, to the lands they're living in. But so are we in a spiritual sense. They, uh, They and we ought to live like we're out of our homeland or outside of our homeland. We're just passing through the wilderness of this world. And in truth, we're headed home to our holy and heavenly nation, that kingdom. And as we sojourn, we must abstain, that is to stay away from the passions of the flesh. Believers must abstain from these intense desires, these these lusts of the the flesh. Peter has in mind uh, actual cravings of the body, uh, in the very least, Peter probably has in mind what he addresses over in chapter 3, verse 4. You might flip over a page and see what he says in chapter 3, verse 4. Peter writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. These were likely the, the sinful indulgences uh, that were permitted even in some instances, uh, encouraged by the surrounding pagan culture. But Peter is saying, no, you must abstain from these things that are sinful, though acceptable to pagans. Uh, Similarly, our society permits and even encourages a, a whole host of indulgences, which the Bible labels as sin. While we may be encouraged by the world to give ourselves to these indulgences of the flesh, The Word of God says to us, stay away from them. Stay away from them. Do you see why? Peter tells us there, because they wage war against your soul. They want to defeat you. 
You are in a fight every day. You are in a fight. You are conducting spiritual warfare. And you hand your enemy a weapon in pursuing the passions of your flesh. There's actually uh, help for you in the fight hidden in this verse. Did you see it? Can you find can you find it? Who can help you? Did you notice that the words sojourners and exiles were in the plural? You are not alone, and you do not fight alone. So do not fight alone. You fight alongside other brothers and sisters. They can help you be holy, and you need their help. You can help them be holy, and they need your help. Is there someone in your life who knows the fight you're in? If not, open up your life and soul to another believer today. Why today? Because you're in a war today. You're in a fight today, and there's strength in numbers. Get someone alongside you and get some help in the fight. Peter encourages a life that abstains and refrains from embracing the passions of the flesh. But positively, there in verse 12, he he encourages a life that is given to doing, that makes a habitual practice of what is honorable. Uh, We ought to abstain from vices and regularly put on and pursue and do that which is pure. That's virtuous. Peter keeps bringing to mind where his readers live. We live among the Gentiles, or or among the pagans, as some translations put it. We live among unbelievers. And it is here, as we live and move among these unbelieving pagan friends, that we must be honorable. And we must have a a good, a commendable way of life. Would your unbelieving friends say these kinds of things about you? Would they say, he's a good man? I know him. He's a, he's a good man. Uh, would they say, she, she keeps her word. She's reliable. Uh, would they say, you know, he is, he is full of integrity. Would they say, she has a commendable character. The conduct that Peter mentions here has, actually has connotations of beauty. And we know that what that, that's like, right? We see somebody who has a commendable way of life who is honorable, who has integrity, who's truthful in their speech, and their life is attractive to us. It's it's beautiful. And Peter's saying that we need to live beautiful lives in front of our attractive lives, in front of our unbelieving friends and neighbors. And interestingly enough, the only way to do that is to live as God intended us to live, as small images and mirrors reflecting His great character and glory. Our conduct will be honorable insofar as it honors God and tells the truth about Him. So so is your conduct honorable in God's sight? That is what is most important because there will come a time, Peter says, when they speak against you. Did you notice that in verse 12? It's almost alarming. Peter doesn't say if they speak against you. He says when they speak against you. Do not be surprised when you are opposed For your godly way of life. Ultimately your life should be a reflection. A a, a proclamation of God and his character. If it is. Then those who hate God. May very well hate you. Isn't that what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't they hate the Lord Jesus Christ? And Jesus himself told us. That no servant is greater than his master. If Jesus was despised and rejected. So we too will be despised. And rejected. We may be despised and rejected, but Peter, he has hope that on the day of visitation, our unbelieving friends and neighbors will see our good deeds and glorify God. What what is Peter saying here? Peter, he seems to have in view the last day, that final day, which he has often urged his readers to live in light of. Peter's kind of saying, pull the reality of that future judgment, that last day, into today. Because it's real and it's coming. And live in light of that future judgment right now. But in what sense will our unbelieving friends and neighbors see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation? Well, it's hard to say for certain. 
But since Peter has just exhorted us to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ with our lips, it seems most likely that he's suggesting that unbelievers may be moved by your honorable conduct and so come to trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Christian, if you're being hounded by unbelievers, continue to be honorable. The Lord might use that to save them. You might not see it in that moment. But he may be working mysteriously in their heart behind what you can see. Keep living honorable. When our confession of Christ with our lips is matched by our Christ-like conduct with our lives, our God may be pleased to use that holistic witness to bring sinners to salvation. And then, on the last day, along with you, they will glorify God in rejoicing in the coming of the King. Because they've come to him in faith. Whatever the case may be, it is clear that we must proclaim Jesus with our lips and we must proclaim Jesus with our lives. There's a sense in which our lives and our conduct will often fall short of our lips and our confession. But we can rest assured that God can make a straight stroke with a crooked stick, as the Puritans used to say. God has no problem writing with an imperfect instrument. That's all that we are. And that's all of us. We're all imperfect instruments. But God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God has no problem. Still, the exhortation remains. Proclaim Christ in word and in deed. Live by God's grace in such a way that your confession matches your conduct. Christians proclaim Christ with life And with lip. That's the billboard that our lives are supposed to display. And consider Peter's aim in all of these verses afresh. Peter, he wants to encourage us to proclaim Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us that we have come to Jesus Christ, God the Father's chosen and precious cornerstone. He encourages us with the truth that God has connected us to Christ. We're building our lives on top of Him. And as we cling to Christ we can be assured that we will never be put to shame. Instead, in God's great grace, we will be honored by Christ and with Christ on the last day. And while we wait for that day, we have the privilege and responsibility of proclaiming Jesus with our lives and our lips. We ought to pray and hope that God will use our bold confession and our beautiful conduct to draw others, to draw many to faith in Jesus Christ. So what does your life proclaim? Better yet, who does your life proclaim? Is it Jesus? By God's grace, make it so. Let's pray together.